Jesus said that we have eyes, but we don't see, and that we have ears, but we don't hear, and he means we don't see what's going on in the spirit realm, what God is up to and, and what Satan is up to, and, and he wants us to see with our spirits, the eyes of our heart. So I want to give you a little prophetic context this morning, some vision into what God is doing in our day, and I hope that this is hopeful and encouraging and freeing to you. It's very sobering, but I hope that given understanding, ultimately will encourage you as I show you something that the Lord showed me. So those of you on social media somewhere uh, have probably seen this, this progression. Bad times, meaning in our culture, in our society, in our world, our economy or whatever, bad times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, and that this cycle repeats itself throughout history. That is a super simplification, but it's somewhat generally true. In our recent history, my grandparents lived through the Great Depression and World War II, a terrible time in world history, but it made them very strong. They're the generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. And they came out of the Depression and World War II uh, through their suffering and the sacrifice and the price that they paid to get through those times, and they made a good world. Strong men make good times. And there was good times in the 50s as far as the baby boom and economic expansion. We went all the way to the moon. Um, the generation that lived through the Great Depression and World War II, those bad times made them strong and industrious and frugal and, and hardworking, and they, they went all the way to the moon. Um, you know, it's, it's about exactly the same from Wilbur and Orville Wright's first airplane to the moon landing as it is from the moon landing to us. And we have not made that much progression since then. I mean, we make a lot of electronics. That's about all we've done uh, with ourselves since then. But those good times that that greatest generation made did not result in their kids becoming great. Their kids are the oldest people in this room. That generation, the good times, made them weak. Drugs, sex, rebellion, rejection of God in schools and culture. Abortion was legalized in the early 70s. Uh, divorce became a normal thing. We went from 80-plus percent of all babies in America born with married parents to now we're under 25%. And those weak people are now creating very bad times in our world. This cycle is, it's not just a list of events, it's a circle that repeats itself over and over and over through world history. That strong people create good times, those good times people get lazy and weak, and then weak people create bad times, and the bad times get so bad that it makes the next generation have to step up and change what their parents and grandparents have done. I think this may be one way the sins of the father are passed down to the third and fourth generation. There is a four-generation cycle all through history of prosperity and growth and then disorder and then ultimately collapse, and out of the collapse rises a new society, a new culture, a new civilization even. Um, it's, it's this history cycle. Uh, we have at the top, we have got renewed order out of previous chaos. We've got renewed order and then a rising civilization and... The government and the economy and family are doing great and then there it gets corrupted and it becomes more disordered and more disordered until eventually we collapse. And then in that, out of that collapse comes a renewed order and this repeats itself. In 1997, there was a book written called The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe and they see that in American history, this cycle plays out every hundred years, roughly. Some of them are shorter, some of them are longer, but they can map out by dates how this cycle repeats itself over and over in American history, each phase lasting roughly, it's a very unexact science, but roughly 25 years. And their words are turnings, that the first turning is, is where things are put in order, and there's a revival, there's a renewal in American culture, 
a new prosperity out of a time that's been bad. And then the second turning is the effect of that renewal and prosperity is good times and growth in the country and growth in our infrastructure and our economy and in our culture. But then in the third turning, things begin to get corrupted. They get uh, disordered a little bit. Things begin to unravel and, and that just continues more sin, more breakdown, more problems until in the fourth turning we have a collapse of our economy or a collapse of our culture, a collapse of our government, and so on. And, and you can look that stuff up if you wish. Like I said, it's in exact science, and what I have for you today is a greatly simplified presentation of their historical theory. But secular history can only point out the cycle and the human events. But the Bible tells us the historical and political and economic story, but it also adds the spiritual dimension. We get to see into the spirit world what's going on with God and the devil and what they're doing in the midst of these earthly events. So we have this new epoch of history where God sets everything right. And there's revival, there's a rising civilization, there's a move of God or there's a man of God. And that, that revival, that leader establishes righteousness, creates a new order out of the past chaos, and there's prosperity, both economic and spiritual. But then over time, those systems that we call our government and our medical system and our education system and our economy, all of that over time becomes entrenched, and then it gets corrupt. And prosperity leads to selfishness and godlessness, and we move from order toward disorder, and sin increases. And then that disorder becomes chaos and a breakdown and a failure of the established systems. And sin grows into evil and it bears the fruit of death. God's judgment on the corrupt and the godless happens in, in the fourth turning. But I want to point out before I go into my examples here that there's, I want to show you there's always movement in between where the, we close the fourth cycle and in back up to the top in the first turning of the cycle as this cycle goes all through history. All through the Bible, I'm going to show you the entire Bible is just this circle over and over and over again. At, at every transition from the fourth turning where there's collapse and chaos and catastrophe until God restores things and there's revival and righteousness and peace restored, there's always movement. Normally that's people being moved. Sometimes it's other things, but, but let me show you. This is the entire Bible. Here we go. God creates things at the beginning, and there's perfect life in the garden. But then Eve eats the fruit, and sin and death enter paradise. We have utter catastrophe. Paradise has failed. Now there's death in it. Everything is ruined. All of God's plan is destroyed. Now where's the movement? Adam and Eve get removed from the garden. But the cycle starts over because God forgives Adam and Eve, and sons are born, Cain and Abel. There's hope. There's a future. Order has been restored. We're moving forward. We didn't end it all. It didn't all fall apart. The cycle starts again. You with me? I got so moved this week thinking about Eve giving birth to Cain and Abel that I started crying about how hopeful and beautiful it was that even after she ruined it all, God gave her a future. And how her giving birth in the midst of such terrible tragedy at how beautiful and hopeful and magical and hopeful a baby is for the future. Sons are born. Things are good. But the boys grow up and Cain fails. And he's jealous of Abel. So he kills him. Utter catastrophe. Complete failure. We're back to just Adam and Eve. There is no future. Abel is dead. Cain is gone. I'm sorry if you don't know these Bible stories. I can't tell you all of them. It's the entire Bible. All right, we're going to go through the entire Bible in like 15 minutes here. So you're just going to have to do your best to hang with me if you don't know these stories. But it ends in chaos and disaster, absolute catastrophe. There is no future. There are no sons. What are we going to do? Where's the movement? God banishes Cain. See the movement? At the end, between the fourth turning and the first turning, between the end of the previous cycle and the beginning of the next one, there, people get moved. God starts the next cycle. Seth is born. That's Adam and Eve's third son. There's hope again, life, a future, and Seth is righteous, and Seth has righteous sons, and his line from Seth to Noah is all pretty good guys, and there's, now, oh, there's order, and there's hope, and there's a future, and we're moving again, and 
And then, but sin increases in wickedness until God says the whole humanity is so wicked I regret creating any of you. And we move into catastrophe. It's the flood. The judgment of God comes and just wipes out the entire system. And everything is over. It's done. And there's movement. Noah on the ark. Gets moved to a completely different world. I don't mean a different planet, but a different world. He gets out of the ark in a completely different world than he went in. We don't know too much what happens between Noah and Abraham. Noah is Abraham's great-great-grandfather. We don't know too much about that, but the next cycle begins with Abraham, and we know it's a beginning because what's the first thing that's happening when we meet Abraham? Abraham's moving. He's starting a new cycle. And God raises up this righteous man, the father of all faith, who is so righteous and so obedient and so humble and so perfect that he will even offer to sacrifice his son to God when God asks for it. If you don't know the story, God didn't um, make him do that, but... Abraham is the revival. He's the restoring of righteousness after the flood. The generations that were wiped out in the flood are gone and we're starting a new cycle. Abraham is perfect and righteous and good and Isaac prospers. Isaac is one of Abraham's children, but he's the main one in the line of the Messiah that the Bible follows. Isaac prospers. He farms. Life is good. Things are going well. And then we come to his son, Jacob, who's the liar, the thief, the cheat. And there's trouble between he and Esau. And Abraham's family now, we're introducing sin and disorder and chaos. And Jacob steals and cheats for his father and his older brother. And then Jacob has his sons and they cheat and rob and lie to him. They sell their brother Joseph into slavery and they lie to their dad that lions had killed him. And everything falls apart with Jacob. And then... We come to the fourth turning, and when Jacob is an old man, there's a famine over the entire world. This is the famine that Pharaoh had a dream about the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows, if you know that. The entire world had a famine, and that's the judgment of God. It's the catastrophe at the end of the cycle where God is ending what Bible historians call the patriarch period. Jacob finds out that Joseph is alive. During the famine, he sends brothers to go to Egypt to buy food because they're all starving to death, and they find that their brother is vice pharaoh of Egypt. And in this catastrophe, there is a movement. There is a transition into the next cycle. What's the movement? Joseph says, hey, why don't you all come down to Egypt and live with me? If you know your Bible, you know what's next. But it's the next cycle. We're starting over again. This is the end of one period and the beginning of the next. Joseph moves everybody down to Egypt. And the next cycle begins where Joseph is the hero. He literally saves the world. Where Pharaoh has his dream that nobody can interpret. And they bring Joseph out of the dungeon because somebody remembers that he has a dream interpretation gift. And Pharaoh says, I dreamed seven fat cows, eight seven skinny cows. What does that mean? And Joseph says, well, it means the next seven years are going to have prosperity. Your crops are going to produce extra. The economy is going to go well. And then the seven years after that is going to be total famine. Everybody's going to starve. So the word of the Lord to you is that during these next seven years when you have extra, you need to take 20% of your harvest every year and put it away in the granaries. And then when we go through this terrible famine that's coming in seven years, we will have extra food for all your people. And Pharaoh is like, you're the savior of Egypt. You're the savior of the world. And he was. So now we start a new cycle. Joseph is is the hero. He saves Egypt. He saves his family. Everything is restored with his brother and his father. And Jacob dies praying to God and blessing his sons. And everything is good. And they move to Egypt and everybody loves Joseph. He's our hero. This is his father and his brothers. Yes, we give you the best pasture land in all of Egypt. Everything is good. But we don't know the details. But somewhere in there in the next hundred or two years... They became the slaves of the Egyptians. We don't know how that happened. Ultimately, 400 years later, we've gone from a righteous Pharaoh to a very evil, godless Pharaoh. Egypt has gone through their cycle, their four turnings. And we find, after the Israelites are enslaved for 400 years, that Egypt comes to its fourth turning. And its fourth turning is God's plagues on them to absolutely destroy their nation because of what they've done to Israel. And where's the movement? It's the Exodus. Okay? And that begins the next period. Because after the Exodus, we have Moses and the law. Hey, 
God's setting up government. He's organizing the tribes. He's giving us his perfect law. Everything is ordered again. We're out of Egypt. We're saved. Everything is great. We're going to the promised land. We're building a tabernacle. This is awesome. And it was for a little bit. Maybe like a week. And then sin and rebellion and complaining and complaining and complaining and fear and faithlessness. And they're actually in the 40 years of the wilderness, there's like a whole bunch of these cycles where they, they collapse and God has to destroy a, a portion of them and, and then he raises them back up because Moses prays for them. God, don't destroy them all. And there's numerous cycles here in the 40 years in the wilderness. But sin and rebellion, and so everybody dies. But looking at the 40-year cycle all as a whole, the movement at the end of it is that Joshua crosses over the Jordan River and brings them into the Promised Land. And we're starting the next cycle. Joshua the conqueror, we're going into the Promised Land. The walls of Jericho fell down. God is on our side. Our disobedient, unbelieving parents have all died in the wilderness, and we are the generation of faith, and we're going to take the promised land, and God is fighting for us. And then there was some stolen gold, and some lost battles, and some refusal to obey, so they get defeated by their enemies. And there's famines, and there's attacks from outside nations. That's the book of Joshua and Judges, is this one cycle, except that it happens over and over again. In fact, it happens 12 times in the book of Judges where God raises up a judge like Samson or Gideon or Jephthah or Barak because the nation collapses into sin. Judges is the grossest book in the Bible. It is full of grotesque sin. Like It's like one of the most evil time periods in world history. And God continually has to set things right, but then they collapse immediately again into idol worship and sexual perversion and all kinds of gross stuff. But God always raises up a judge to move the nation, to move them into battle, to move them toward God. We're going to come back to this one in a minute. But at the end of the judges period, God raises up a king who's got a heart after his own heart. God's like, this is, this is the perfect king. This is the man after my own heart. We got David and we got Solomon, the wisest, richest man that ever lived. We've got the kingdom that is so rich under Solomon that it says, Silver was accounted as nothing. All Solomon's dishes were pure gold because silver didn't even have any value. There was so much of it. We're, we're prospering. Things are great. The kingdom is awesome. David has set up his tabernacle and we're building a temple and things are going great. Order is restored. The past perversions and chaos of the judges period is gone. We're serving God. We're a nation on the move. We're defeating the Philistines. Everybody, everybody falls before David. And Solomon rules from Egypt to Persia. And then he starts bowing down to other idols. And there's sin and there's idols and there's more sin and more idols. And the period of the kings, this is the cycle is 400 years, 450 years. They just continue to sin more and more. God raises up prophets and righteous kings. So within this cycle, there's a whole bunch of many ones where he raises up a revival under Josiah or Joash or Hezekiah or Elijah and Elisha. He's continually sending messengers to start the cycle over again, but the people won't stick with it. And eventually, the end of the king's period, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem, flattens the temple, flattens the walls of Jerusalem. There is no future for Israel. We have been wiped off the map. And where's the movement? Our people are hijacked and taken off as hostages to Babylon. We don't have our promised land. We don't have our Jerusalem. We don't have our temple. Our God has abandoned us. This is absolute catastrophe. Failure of everything. It's all over. Except that it wasn't. Because the cycle starts over again. Seventy years later, God brings revival. Ezra and Nehemiah, back in Babylon, move. The new cycle is beginning. Here we are. We're moving back to Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild the wall. We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to reestablish righteousness. You're not going to be married to your Canaanite wives anymore. There's revival. There's purity. There's righteousness. God has rebuilt things, and there's new order, and there's hope again, and there's a future. And then they get conquered by the Greeks. And then they get conquered by Rome. And then in 70 AD, Rome completely flattens Jerusalem, destroys the temple again. And the cycle has repeated itself. 
and the temple has never been rebuilt since for 2,000 years. This rubble is laying there under the city. And where is the movement? The Jews are scattered all over the world where they still are, except for the last 80 years when there's been unprecedented movement, migration back to Israel. People from nearly every nation in the world have moved to Israel in the last 80 years. There's always movement right before first turning. The life of Jesus is this circle. There's Jesus, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, comes to earth. The kingdom is at hand. Miracles, signs, wonders, hope, Messiah, salvation. Rejection, sin, hatred, jealousy. God dies. Like the ultimate catastrophe of the universe. God died. But there's movement. The stone rolled away. And he got up out of the grave. And a new cycle began that we call the New Testament. It's our life. Amen? One more. The entire history of the whole world is this one circle. God created paradise perfect. God loves us. He forgives us. He reveals his word to us. He teaches us over and over and over again. And over and over again, it's rejection, rebellion, sin, and disaster. And so the ultimate fourth turning is the book of Revelation. Seals and trumpets and bowls of wrath. Water turning to blood and everybody dying because God has God is going to unravel the entire universe. But even that is not the end. Because there's movement. The new Jerusalem comes to earth. And the new eternity begins. Hey, there's always a first turning after a fourth turning. Fourth turning is the disaster. It's the judgment of God. It's the, it's the collapse. But there's always something coming. God creates something good, declines over time. The status quo becomes sinful, holds the righteous in bondage. God comes and destroys the current system, which throws everything into turmoil. Judgment happens between the cycles. There's a battle in the natural and in the spirit. There's disturbance and upheaval. And in the Bible and in history, that looks like famine, Drought, calamity, natural disaster, civil war, government collapse, plagues, economic failure, total military defeat. All of those things happen when a culture or society has a fourth turning. We started out great. We continue to sin until we get over here to where God has to judge us and bring us down. This is why every culture through history, every society, every government has thought that revelation was happening in their day. For 2,000 years... All of the cultures that know about, the, about Revelation, they're like, oh, this is it. This is the end. Because they're coming to an end of their world. God is judging. This is their fourth turning in their generation. And again, none of them have an, they're not, it's not an exact time period. It's not, like, I mean, the guys who wrote the book claim that it happens every, every hundred years. We go around that circle. So there's a 25-year period at the end of every hundred, every century where, uh, where the fourth turning happens and things fall apart and we have to start over again. But, but that's not an exact science because some of them are thousands of years long. But er every time, when the bubonic plague was spreading all over medieval Europe, they were absolutely certain Jesus was coming back next week because the world is falling apart. And it was. It was a fourth turning. It was a collapse. It was an apocalypse, but it wasn't the capital A apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And you go to World War I, and you, you look at the, the sermons in the church from World War I. This is it. This is the war to end all wars. This is the great war that Jesus told us war would happen. And this is it. There's, it's unimaginable that anything could be bigger than this. And then World War II happened 25 years later, and it dwarfed World War I in the death and cost and blood and victims. And this is why... When a fourth turning comes to every culture, they always think it's the end of their world. This must be the book of Revelation. My point is that people aren't crazy for thinking that because it is an apocalypse. It's just not the capital A one yet. But one of them will be. Eventually, we will finish a cycle that is 
God's ultimate time is up. This is not just the end of the cycle for this nation or this culture or this people. This is the end of the cycle for the entire universe. And it will be the capital A apocalypse. So people aren't fools for thinking that way. It's just that it hasn't happened yet. But when a fourth turning comes, there's always movement. And I showed you that in the Bible, and I want to continue to show it to you at a couple specific stories. There's the failure of the old, but there's always movement into the new, and it's always distressful. But God's judgment and even his destruction of the status quo is always to move us toward Jesus. He's always moving us toward Jesus. Even Jesus' death on the cross, the ultimate catastrophe, was to establish the kingdom of heaven and move us toward Jesus. There's always hope. There's always a future. Thank you, Ken. There is always a future. Okay. So, America was birthed by God. Yeah, you read the writings of the colonists and you read what Gen uh, President Washington and Pre President Adams said in the beginning. They said there's absolutely no way we should have defeated the British Army. They're the biggest, most powerful, and wealthiest uh, in, the, in the world. America was birthed by God. It was a fourth turning for the Native Americans. It was the first turning for the people coming in. I think, this is just my opinion, you can disagree or not, I think God's ultimate purpose for the United States was to stop Satan in his early attempt at an Antichrist in, in World War II. And I don't mean Hitler. I mean the Nazis and the Japanese. The Japanese way may have been even more brutal, brutal and wicked an Antichrist than the Germans even. Uh, Hitler's an easy target. And it certainly would include him. But um, America progressed and increased until that point. We had cycles within that. The Civil War was a fourth turning within a, a smaller cycle within our larger one. The Civil War was the end of that wicked a judgment on that wicked system that was slavery. And we're beginning anew. But it's, it's one of the smaller cycles within the big picture. I think the big picture overall history of the United States is that God's pur purpose for us was he needed a nation at that point in the 1940s who was big enough, powerful enough, rich enough to stop Japan and Germany, uh, Satan setting up his antichrist government. It wasn't God's time. I think that because ever since then we've declined. We had an economic boom in the 50s and early 60s, but morally, culturally, family, everything has fallen apart since World War II. Every generation has declined from the previous one. So what was righteous became corrupt, sinful, even evil. We legalized abortion. We export porn around the world. We created a welfare system that enslaves people. Drugs, feminism, devastated family, an entertainment industry that exports sin to the entire world. And those entrenched systems, industries and the government and social groups and the media and financiers, they profit from the corruption and sin the way it is. And they enslave the lost and they oppress and pervert the church. And so God has to bring it down. There has to be a fourth turning. We've lived in the third one for decades. We're now in the fourth, I think. Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood looking backward, but we have to live it forward. <laughs> it's impossible to know what's coming. Churchill said, the future, though imminent, is veiled. Like there, We know there's something right behind the curtain that's in our future, but we don't know what it is or when it's coming. So it's impossible. This is not a science, but being a historian, it fascinates me, and I, I just can put a lot of the puzzle pieces together. Uh, I think we're in a fourth turning. It's just absolutely no question something major happened in 2020. Everything changed from the previous world. But I'm actually not convinced that 2020 was the beginning of our fourth turning. It may have started September 11th, 2001. At the time, that was a world-changing event for us. I knew it then. God's hand was removed from our nation. There's protection like in a way that it had not happened before. I can't prove that. I don't know. I don't claim that that's 
a fact. It's just a, a theory of mine. It possibly started in 2001. We're just, it's just getting more serious as we go over the last 20 years. But Strauss and Howe, the guys that wrote the book, The Fourth Turning, in 1997 said that we were in the end of the third turning and that in 2008 we would begin the fourth turning according to their number structure, which is a little too rigid to be exactly true, but it's pretty amazing how close they get it. 2008, what happened? The Great Recession, the housing collapse, the banking collapse, President Obama was elected, which was way more wicked than people understand. There was a spiritual door opened in 2008 in our country. and So I don't know. Are we 21 years into it? Are we 15 years into it? Or are we two years into this fourth turning? I, I don't know. But I don't think there's any question we're in it now. <laughs> we're in the judgment of God. We're in a collapse of our society and our economy, our culture, and the shelves at Walmart and the auto parts store and the appliance store are the proof of that. Our wars that we've been in, we just... We're, it happens so slow, and it isn't like one day we go to bed and the third turning ends and we wake up the next morning and the fourth turning begins. It's just there's an overlap there, and it's, it's decades, and, and it's people's lives, and, and we're just used to it, and we've lived in such a sewer of a culture for all of our lives, even the oldest folks here. We've lived in it so long, it's, it really is the frog in the pot, and it just the water keeps getting warmer, and we're not realizing it just keeps how rotten our world is, but it's, it seems clear. I mean, maybe somebody wants to argue with that, but it seems clear that we're falling apart. We're, we're unraveling. We're in the chaos that is the fourth turning, the judgment of God, the end of our world as we know it. And I don't know that that means the end of America. I don't know because there's always, it always is going to start over again. Uh, every nation, every empire, every people does come to an end, but sometimes there's multiple cycles inside of, inside of that. I don't know that America isn't going to exist in 30 years. I'm not saying that at all. I just, but, but the world that we knew is being judged, and, and it's over. How long it lasts? I don't know. How far into it? Don't know. What's next? Don't know, but it's, all, it's going to be pretty awesome. Because God always brings revival. He always restores righteousness. There's always a first turning after the fourth turning. There's always a transition. But in the meantime, there's lots of movement. So I do believe we're in a fourth turning. It's the judgment of God. It's the collapse of the status quo. It's his destruction of the corrupted, established system that we have lived in. The media is failing. The banks are failing. The medical system's failing, the education system's failing, all of them are corrupt. And he's bringing them all down. And something enormously great is on the other side. But what the heck do we do in the meantime? Like, come on, God! <laughs> like, we gotta have toilet paper! Like, it's scary, God! I don't wanna live through a fourth turning! Well, here we are! Whether you asked for it or not, you, God picked you to be here today! Whether you want to hear this sermon or not. What do we do in the meantime? How does God deal with us peons while he's judging the corrupt of the world? Hopefully you're not the corrupt of the world. Uh, you're not those that are profiting off of sin and corrupting the world. But how does God deal with the little people during a fourth turning in a, in a culture or a society or a nation? There's lots of stories in the Bible that relate to that, but I just want to draw out three. And one of them's not on the screen. First one is Joseph. I'm going to take you back to Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, goes off to the land of Egypt as a slave and then a prisoner. He gets falsely accused of attempted rape and gets put in prison for years. And then Pharaoh has this dream of these seven fat cows eating the seven skinny cows. And somebody in his courtroom is like, hey, there's a guy down in the dungeon that can tell you anything your dream means. And I get him up here. So they showered and shaved him really quick and brought him into the presence of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I had this dream. Seven fat cows ate these seven skinny cows. Tell me what that means. None of my wise men know. And he says, oh, that's easy. It means that the next seven years are going to be great economic prosperity. And then after that, you're going to have seven years of total collapse, total failure, a fourth turning event. And obviously, that's not what he said, but that's what he told him. He said a worldwide famine, and it was. So... The first thing I want to tell you about living through a fourth turning event, as Joseph did and his, and his righteous Pharaoh that he served, is that you need to prepare. You need to save up 
before it happens. It's a little too late because we're already in it. But it's probably not too late. Like it's not ungodly as long as you're not doing it in fear. You're doing it in faith and obedience to the Lord. I told you three weeks ago, you need to prepare for your future. You follow the Lord and you do what he tells you to do. That may mean stocking up on water filtration and canned goods. Uh, or it may mean that God tells you to give it all away, sell it all, and give it to the poor and, and go live in a mud hut in Mexico. It, whatever he tells you to do, you prepare for your future. Because whatever he tells you to do, he loves you, he's taking care of you, and he's leading you in the right direction. So the first principle is, while you have something, prepare for when you won't. It's always going to come. If times are good right now, things will change. If things are bad right now, things will change. It's always going to change. It's going to be okay. When things are good, don't waste all your time and money. Save up some for later. Another story I want to show you about how God may deal with some of you is from Elijah, 1 Kings 17. Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen in Israel during Elijah's ministry as a prophet. Everybody remember Ahab and Jezebel? the most wicked king Israel or Judah ever had. I mean, just really, really sick, evil people. And they have ruled for some time, and God has given them warning after warning, and they refuse to repent, so we come to a fourth turning. God's like, I'm going to judge you, and as far as your cycle, your life circle is, it, you're done. It didn't happen when Elijah prophesied. It didn't happen the next day or the next week. It was like a decade of overlap between God pronouncing judgment and when Ahab and Jezebel died. Ahab and Jezebel died even years apart. Okay? So don't think of these things as uh, being divided too crisply. But this story is God bringing judgment, bringing an end to Ahab and Jezebel, even though it doesn't happen for years. God tells Elijah the Tishbite, of the inhabitants of Gilead, and he says to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain these years except at my word. The New Testament tells us it was three and a half years that there was not rain or dew, no moisture of any sort, because Elijah prayed it, because God told him to. This is the catastrophe that is the fourth turning in Ahab and Jezebel's life. This is God withdrawing his hand. This is his judgment. This is the unraveling of their kingdom and their authority. I'm pronouncing judgment on you. It's over. So the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. You need to picture one of the side canyons off of the interstate between Durkee and Huntington. That's what this looks like. All right, the Jordan River runs through the deserty hills, and there are one of these little side creeks that runs in, just like all those canyons off to the side of the Burnt River um, that Elisha's hiding under there because Ahab and Jezebel have a death warrant out for him. He's hiding in there, and God says, God tells him where to go to this little canyon along this creek. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened while, when the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. God tells him to pronounce judgment on Ahab and Jezebel in the land, no rain. He does that. They put a death warrant out for him. He has to go hide in the desert. He drinks from the creek every morning and evening. Birds drop meat and bread on his head. That's the ultimate door dash. Uh, after some time, that creek dries up, and so God says, I want you to go to a widow in Sidon. Sidon's a foreign country, way up north um, on the Mediterranean coast, and he said, there's a widow lady there I'm going to bring you to, and she will take care of you. Well, if you know your Bible story, that's the story where uh, as long as Elijah lived with her, her flour and oil didn't run out. Um, that's this widow that God's telling him to. Notice, we're in, a, we're in a disaster. That's the judgment of God. And Elijah keeps getting moved. There's the movement. See it? God tells him, go hide by a creek in the, in the desert. I will literally drop, drop your food on your head every morning. I'll take care of you. And then when the water dries out, now you had to move again. I'm moving you to a foreign country with a total stranger who doesn't know your God I will make her take care of you. 
and I will do a miracle for her in the process. Some of you, you know that you know that God has told you to be where you're at doing what you're doing. Great. He might change that again. Like if the word of the Lord came to Elijah and, and, and he says, um, I want you to move to the widow's house. He's like, well, God, I know you told me to be here by this brook, so I'm sitting by this brook. I ain't moving. I got too much stuff for you all. I don't want to move. Uh, here, here it is. Be ready to move. When you're living in a fourth turning epoch of history, you have to be ready to move. And God may move you. How many of you have moved since 2020? Moved houses? A whole bunch of you didn't attend church here before then. You've moved churches. You may have moved jobs. You may have moved schools. God's moving you. How many of you moved since 2008 or 2001? God's getting you where he wants you to be. Are you prospering where he's got you? A bunch of you are way better off than you were before you got into your current situation. It's God preparing you to survive the fourth turning event. You don't need to be afraid of shortages. Okay, if we go to Walmart and there's no milk in the cooler, it could happen. It could seriously happen and it would be terrifying. God can drop food out of the sky on your head if he wants to. He can make a donkey talk. He can bring a coin out of a fish's mouth. He will take care of you as long as you have obeyed him and you're in the right spot. The oil and the flour will not run out if you're where you're supposed to be. But you might have to camp out hiding in a desert creek for a year and a half or two. I don't know. But when fourth turning events happen, there's lots of movement, very plain, that all through history, when a catastrophe happens, mass migration happens. I don't know that it's likely, but it is thoroughly possible that none of us could live in Oregon in 10 years. I don't know. It's, that's not unlikely at all. The movement is already happening. We have unprecedented migration out of California. We have uncalculable numbers of people coming into America across our southern border. I mean, like, unbelievable. The whole world is stirred up. Be ready to move. I, I don't necessarily mean that means you're moving a house or to a different state, but if God tells you to change jobs or schools or just, or just get in, get in place. Be ready to get in place, and he will take care of you. Be ready to move. Another story I want to take you to is the story of Ruth. It's a little four-chapter book. You can read it in 20 minutes. It's a lovely little uh, romance story. But uh, the book of Ruth is God's record of what's happening on the ground with the little people during a fourth-turning event. The first sentence in the book of Ruth is, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. There's your fourth turning. There's the judgment of God. We're ending the judges' cycle, and we're going to begin the king's cycle. But Ruth takes us from judges to kings. I'm sorry if you don't know enough Bible to follow that, but the judges' period had become extremely corrupt, so bad that the, the priests are having sex with the women who come to worship at the tabernacle. It was just, it was horrendous. And God had to judge it, and he judged it with a famine. And that's the beginning of the book of Ruth. And this is the world that God needs to bring down. But tell, I'm answering the question, what about the little people? What about the faithful? What about the obedient? What happens to us, if that's you? What happens to us while God brings down the corrupt systems, the leaders that are opposing him and oppressing people? Here we go. This is how it works. A great famine came upon the land, and so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. So this family lives in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, but there is no food. So we have to leave, and not only do they leave, they go to Moab. Moab is an enemy nation that it worships idols and God says have nothing to do with them. But they go because there's food. We have to move where there's food. We have a fourth turning Judgment of God event, and we have movement. Hello? The man's name was Elimelech, 
His wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephraimites, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. Two sons married Moabite women. This is another complete illegal thing under God's law. You cannot marry a non-Israelite woman. You cannot take an idol-worshiping girlfriend from a foreign country who's going to lead you away from me. God says you must marry only Israelite women, but these boys didn't. You know, this is where the girls are, and this is who's available, and this is where we live now. So they marry these foreign women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. But about 10 years later, Malon and Kilion both died, and this left Naomi alone with her, without her two sons or her husband. And then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. There's this next cycle beginning. The famine's over. God has returned. God's blessing. God's restoring order out of chaos. He's bringing blessing out of loss. He's putting things back together that were broken. You with me? A new cycle is beginning. It's going to be nearly 100 years before we get to King David, but the new cycle has begun right here. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi told to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So you probably heard that passage read at weddings, which is perfectly fine, um, but it's, it's actually a, a girl to her former mother-in-law that said that. So uh, Naomi is probably in her late 40s, Ruth is probably in her late 20s, and they have, in their world, no hopes at all. They have no man to take care of them, which is what you had to have in that world. Um, fathers and sons are gone. They have no prospects and Naomi is going back to a homeland she hasn't been at in 10 years. They don't own any property, and Ruth is just that loyal. Ruth, for some reason, we don't know their relationship, but for some reason, Ruth is like, no, I'm going with you. I love you. I will be with you till the day we die. I'm moving. Disaster has happened, and I'm moving. So the rest of the story is not going to be on the screen, but I'll just tell you that Ruth and Naomi go back to the area of Bethlehem, and in those days, if you didn't have any prospects for income at all, um, then your only hope was to glean. And gleaning is going and gathering crops in the fields. And God's law said to the landowners that when you harvest your fields, don't harvest clear to the edge. Leave a little bit around the edge. And if you drop some, just keep walk on working, let it lay there. And then the, the widows and the poor and the orphans of the land can come out and pick that up. And that was, that was God's uh, system for welfare and taking care of the poorest of the poor. And we find in the story Ruth out in the field gleaning grain, just going around picking up the odd straw that's still got a head of barley on it, and that's because that's how poor they were. It was like that's how we get our daily food is just go out in the in the harvest time, and 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 she would gather grain for she and Naomi, and then she would take it back and they would grind it together, and she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz, and Boaz is a relative of Naomi's former husband. So some sort of extended cousin or something. The Bible doesn't say exactly. But Boaz, for those of you who know her, Boaz is the son of Rahab, the prostitute that had lived in Jericho. So he knows, he, I need to take care of these two ladies. So he tells his boys that are harvesting his field, he's like, you know what? Leave extra. Drop it on purpose. Just, just leave it there. We'll let Ruth take it take it home, and she and Naomi can, can have extra. So right from the beginning, Boaz is generous, he's kind, he's taking care of poor people who are his extended family of some sort. And no, the Bible says absolutely nothing negative at all about Boaz. He's a, he's a great man, likely in his 50s or 60s. And the story is that Naomi gets Ruth married to Boaz. He eventually takes Ruth as a husband, and there's this whole story that is a picture of Jesus and the church 
because there's a wedding that happens at the harvest, um, which is not an accident. And there's this, this whole story about Ruth being redeemed, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But I just want to jump to the end that Ruth gets pregnant and has a son named Obed, and Obed grows up, and he fathers Jesse, who's the dad of King David. Ruth is King David's great-grandmother. So here's my point. The life story of Ruth is the transition between the fourth turning and the first turning, between God ending the judges period and judging that corruption and wickedness and bringing in King David. But Ruth lives in a foreign land. She knows no one. She has to embrace her mother-in-law that she didn't need to. She has to face poverty instead of staying where she's at and finding another boyfriend and getting married. She's like, I'm going to go with you and your God's going to be my God. God, she, she is the one person on the planet at that time that God has to move from where she's at to, to Bethlehem so that she can give birth to David's grandpa so that I can begin the next cycle. So my point is, if God tells you to move, move because he's getting you into Jesus' story. It may be really hard. It may be really scary. You may be really poor. I don't know what's coming. But if whatever, wherever God tells you to go, go. Whatever he tells you to do, do. Because he's getting you into Jesus' story. Some of you still aren't too sure. I don't know if I want to be in Jesus' story. God's goal, whenever he brings a fourth turning, whenever he pronounces judgment and brings destruction on a corrupt system, it is never merely destruction or judgment. It is always movement toward him, toward justice and freedom and Jesus and the kingdom. So he didn't, he didn't have Naomi and Orpah and Ruth's husbands die just to kill them because they're wicked, or he didn't bring famine on Israel just to punish them. He's like, yes, there's punishment for your sin, but there's also redemption. I have The next cycle is ready to start, and i got to get everybody in the right place so that my, the man after my own heart can come. God's not just angry at what is happening, so he's in a destructive mood. It's always that he's also moved in mercy, and he's moved by our prayers for revival. So he's stirring the pot, and he's breaking up the current system that Satan has ruined, and he's moving people, and granted in great distress, but he's moving people to get us into salvation. So Ruth began a new cycle during her lifetime. The nation began a new cycle, and she was a key part of it. It began at the famine at the end of the time of the judges, and then 60 or 70 years later, little baby David is born. Well, what happened in the meantime? Like we, have, we see that God visited his people with bread. The new cycle has begun. Hope is restored. Order, crops, growth, prosperity. Oh, God, thanks, God. The famine is over. But it's going to be 60 or 80 years until, until David is king. Well, in the meantime, there's a woman named Hannah who's desperately praying for a baby. And her son is Samuel. And Samuel and Obed are about the same age. They're living at about the same time. There's babies being born right now today who are going to rock this world in 25 years. Come on. Strauss and Howe pointed out that the, the children born during the fourth turning are the ones that bring the first turning when they get into their 20s and 30s. They change things. It's historically true and it's biblically true that there's a Samuel and there's an Obed being born right now. We may not see it. We may not, we may not live long enough if God takes decades to do this. We may not live long enough to see what God has in mind that is so wonderful, awesome, powerful. But your grandkids will see it and are you willing, are you willing to fast for it now? Are you, are you willing to pray and fast and work for something you're never going to see? Chris Valentin's famous for asking that question. In that 60 to 80 years, God is preparing for a King David. He, I, I have plans for a man after my own heart who will shepherd Israel in righteousness. And in that period between his great-grandmother Ruth and David becoming king, what does Satan do? He gives them King Saul. The devil knows he can't stop God from starting the new cycle, so I will ruin it right from the beginning. God has plans to give him a king. I will give him an evil one. So 
for us, what I think that means is that the chaos we're living in right now, in our current global meltdown, some of the chaos and upheaval is God bringing judgment on a corrupt governments and corrupt industries and media and culture and stuff. But some of it is Satan trying to delay what God has in store next. Because what God has in store next is awesome. And equal to however big and awesome and glorious and phenomenal whatever God's first tur- next first turning is, Satan is going to fight it now. So something really awesome is coming because really bad stuff is happening. And not even everything that's in the news. I mean, I know, I know you know about all the pandemic stuff and the supply chain stuff and war with Russia and illegal immigration and kids having to wear masks at schools and the destruction that that is. But there's stuff going on that isn't being talked about. Just earlier this week, there was a report from the life insurance companies in America that our non-COVID death rate, subtracting everything out that was attributed to COVID, whether that's accurate or not, doesn't matter. Subtract all those numbers. The death rate in America is 40% higher than it was in 2019. Prudential Life Insurance says their claims are 87% higher than they were three years ago. Pacific Life, they say they're up 80%. 80% more people died in 2021, not including COVID. Subtract all those numbers, which would make it even higher. Subtract those numbers, non-COVID deaths are up 80% according to Pacific Life. 87% according to Prudential Taking all life insurance companies in America as a whole, it averages out to 40%. But it's not just America. India notices the same thing, and the UK notices the same thing. Maybe that's attributable to people dying from health problems that the treatment was put off because of the lockdown. Some people have attributed it to, in America, to our new um, epidemic of fentanyl use. That's now, fentanyl's now the number one cause of death for men and women, between 18 and 46 or something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but, but India doesn't have a corresponding fentanyl overdose. You said that the doctor that invented mRNA vaccine technology says it's the COVID vaccine. He's like, I'm the one that made it, and I thought it would work, but it's actually killing people. And because he's saying that, he's been kicked off of all media. So at a minimum... An average is 40, we're up 40%. 40% more people died in 2021 than in 2018 and 2019. Now get this. In the insurance industry, they have ratings of how bad a disaster is based on how many people die and how many dollars it costs to fix it. So like Katrina and earthquakes and tsunamis, you with me? So there's a ranking system. The highest ranking rank, I guess, in the disaster categories is a three sigma and a three sigma disaster is a once in 200 year event so something that would only happen once every 200 years so that's Katrina or historically like in 1812 there was an earthquake in Missouri that made the Mississippi River flow backward it flowed north for three days if that happened now Memphis and St. Louis would just be wiped off the map as well as a whole bunch of other little towns how many of you have heard about the tsunamis on the on the west coast the geologists can see there's a 200-year cycle. Every 200 years, there's a tsunami that comes further inland than all the rest of them. They can tell from sedimentary layers and such. So we are 270 years, roughly, from the last one, even though it's a 200-year cycle. I mean, we're long overdue for this Cascadia subduction zone, massive tsunami that's going to wipe out Seattle and Portland and San Francisco. And Once every 200 years, those are the biggest events that they rank in the insurance company, to qualify, there has to be a 10% increase in death in a quarter. We have a 40% increase in death in three years. We're living through something enormous, folks. Really, really big. And nobody knows it because just the P word is out there everywhere. But uh, there's other stuff, really big stuff that Satan and God are up to. Some of you look scared and wished you'd skip church today. 
I realize that this isn't a, a, a happy sermon, but ultimately what I want is for you to understand God's prophetic timetable. I want you to understand the cycle we're in, and I want you to have hope that this is not the end. This isn't the capital A apocalypse because all the stuff in Revelation isn't happening. So there will be another cycle. I don't know how long they last. Jesus said we wouldn't know when he comes back. So where in the cycle does he come back? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm telling you, God is up to something big because the devil's up to something big. And we can have hope. And we don't need to be afraid. But also, you've got to be sober. And you have got to wake up. Because I don't think... I don't think we're in the end of this fourth turning. I think we're at the very beginning of it. But regardless, I don't think it's ending anytime soon because bad times have not made strong people yet. For the most part, the church is still asleep. And you're either fighting with anger or your flesh, and you're mad at the government, and you're mad at this and that, and or you're just that... That optimism that is a lie that I tell you about all the time, oh, it's just going to get better, we'll just live through it, and it'll be okay. Like, no, you, you, need to, you need to be fasting. You need to be praying. You need to be, for, for the most part, the prayer meetings aren't more attended now than they were three years ago. Even though utter disaster is happening, the church is asleep, and the world is just mad. Or trying to cover it up because they're the ones profiting. Hard times haven't made strong people yet, so it has to get worse so that people show up. I see hope. I see hope in the Canadian truckers. I see hope in the school protests. The kids are now taking their masks off, even though their parents and teachers won't. I see hope that people are getting strong and fighting back. Frederick Douglass says the limit to a tyrant is how much will his people put up with. There is hope, but I don't think trucks are going to defeat demons. This, ultimately, this is a spiritual battle. The church is blind and deaf and asleep. Those of you who see things, it's not wrong to prep for yourself, but if that's all you're doing, you're completely missing the point. Bad times are coming, I need to prepare. Well, yes, but that's a secondary issue. You need to pray. You need to obey. You need to move. There will be a place of bread, a table in the wilderness, a brook cherith, a field of Boaz, but you've got to be where God tells you to be. Revival is coming. Jesus will be king, but it will be in great distress and transition. But that transition is not Total destruction, it is God's unimaginable goodness. He's setting us up to bring us into Christ. If you don't know Jesus this morning, he is our refuge, he is our hope. No matter what comes, we trust him, and we would love to introduce you to him this morning. I hope that you all do know Jesus personally, and that you have been put your faith in him and been baptized. If that's not you, we would, we would love to pray with you and introduce you, ask him to reveal himself to you. If you do know Jesus, it's time to wake up, folks. Shake off the drowsiness and get serious. But the New Testament uses the word sober over and over again. And it doesn't just mean be sober, not drunk. It means be sober in your view of life and the world and the short time that we have. None of us ask to live in these times, but apparently God thinks we're up to the task. You know what? I picked this person and this person and this person and this person and this person to live in 2020. And to be the age that you are with the knowledge you have and the future you do or don't have, he knows it all. And he's picked you for right here, which means you're up to the task. If your faith is in Jesus, your flesh ain't going to make it. Your money isn't going to save you. Your guns are not going to save you. Jesus will save you. Your anger is not going to fix the problem. Be angry, but pray. Give that fear to the Lord. Ask him where you should be and what you should be doing. He'll drop meat on your head every morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for showing us the cycles of history and where we are in your prophetic timeline, what you're doing with our country and our world. 
and the events that are so scary around us, and they're big, and they're bigger than us, and we don't understand them all, or we can't do anything about them, but you can. So we turn to you, and we say, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we ask you to take care of us in the midst, that you would provide the field of Boaz for us to find our grain, that you would provide the brook for us. Lord, you have miraculous ways of taking care of your people as we look to you, as we obey you, as we go where you tell us to go and do what you tell us to do. Love who you tell us to love and serve who you tell us to serve. You will provide. You will shelter. You will have us in exactly the right place to get us into Jesus' story. Thank you for the testimony of Ruth that even as the world's chaos goes on around, there's romance and love and provision and safety and and babies, thank you for the hope, for the beauty, for the joy of our babies. And the future that that is, that you always begin again, a new revival, a new hope, a new order. Thank you, Lord. You will raise our kids to be strong, faithful, righteous, integrous, not bowing to the world as our previous generations have. Thank you that you will wake up the church, that you will purify her in holiness and the fear of the Lord. Lord, we pray for the fear of the Lord for our kids, that they would not follow our example up today, that you would wash your bride clean, fill her with courage and boldness and faith, inhabit us by your Holy Spirit, that we would not spread anger but spread hope and salvation. Lord, you picked us to live in these days, so here we are. We're your servants. Our lives are forfeit for your name anyway. We knew that when we signed up. When we went down to the waters of baptism, we said we're dying. The rest of our time is yours. Forgive us for taking it back because we got afraid. It's all yours, Jesus. Whatever, whatever comes through the curtain in front of us, you're bigger than it, and we won't bow. You're able to save us, and even if you don't, we will not bow. You will be with us in the fire. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Grace and peace to all your people. In Jesus' name, amen.